Uh, today we're going to wrap up our month-long confident spiritual growth campaign where we have been working our way through and getting into and hopefully getting it into us, the book of 1 John. Um, I uh, wrapped up this morning like I, I expect some of you did, the devotional booklet that we've been going through. I had a chance to kind of go back and think through some of the, um, the things that God has been teaching me through this, just how, uh, just the different things. It's been a very powerful February. I hope it was for you too. I hope this week in your small groups that you'll celebrate what uh, God has been uh, showing you through this whole time. If uh, you haven't finished your, your devotional booklet, that's fine. Just keep going with it. There's plenty of days left that you can still let God speak to you from the book of 1 John. But we're going to wrap up our thoughts this morning in 1 John chapter 5. If you uh, haven't done so yet, if you have a Bible or a device, you can turn there towards the end of your New Testament, 1 John chapter 5. You might also want to reach into your worship folder and pull out these message notes. It has the entire chapter there that we're going to look at, as well as on the back some spaces that you'll be able to fill in uh, later on in my message. If I say something insightful before then, you can just write it in the margin, I guess. So, uh, But we're going to step into 1 John chapter 5, uh, beginning in verse 1, if you want to follow along. John says this, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. And this is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving, uh, by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is, the this is love for God, to keep his commands. And his commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, let me remind you again of the backdrop of this entire book of 1 John is that there has been these false teachers who had been spreading heresy about Jesus. They were teaching that Jesus was just a man that God had descended on, had descended on at his baptism, and then had left him at his crucifixion because they felt, of course, God couldn't die. And so the man, Jesus, was just someone that God had descended on and left but as a result, they were teaching that Jesus wasn't actually God in the flesh. And so John is emphasizing this point yet again, like he's been doing this whole book, that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. Did you notice it? Verse 1, he said, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Verse 5, who is it? That overcomes the world, only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Not that he was descended upon as the Son. No, he was the, the God in the flesh, Son of God. He's making the point that true believers first believe right about who Jesus is, but also, secondly, he makes the point 
that they also live right in response. They're obeying the commands that Jesus gave us because he was the Son of God. Again, verse 2, he says, This is how we know that we love the children of God by loving God and by carrying out his commands. Verse 3, in fact, this is the love for God to keep his commands. And then John makes the point about these commands of Jesus there at the end of verse 3. Did you notice that? He says, and his commands are not burdensome. In fact, he goes on in verse 4 to say, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Rebecca Ruth writes this. She says, when we live for God, our lives are so much better. When we give up our sins, there is joy, not misery. You see, God's ways are always better. They are for our good and God's glory. And so doing it God's way leads to blessings, leads to benefits, will lead to joy, whereas disobedience to God and his ways always brings consequences instead. You see, sin has a price. And when it's paid, when we experience those consequences, you see, it would have been better to have done it God's way, right? So in the long run, obeying God's commands isn't burdensome. It's better. It's for our good as well as God's glory. It's why Jesus could say that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Remember that in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30? Jesus said, Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. God's commands aren't burdensome, they're for our good. Well, John continues here in chapter 5. He says, verse 6, And this is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit the water, and the blood. And the three are in agreement. And we accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it's the testimony of God, which he has given about his Son. And whoever believes in the Son of God accepts this testimony. And whoever does not believe God has made him, God, out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony of God that he has given about his son. And this is, this is the testimony, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his son. And whoever has the son has life, and whoever doesn't have the son of God 
doesn't have life. Now, what John does here is he gets a little theological. And what he says basically is this victory that he mentions in verse 4 that we have over sin is ours because of the work of Jesus and the indwelling Holy Spirit living in us. You see, when he talks about the water here, he's talking about Jesus' baptism. That's when Jesus began his work. That's when he stepped into his earthly ministry. And when he talks about blood here, he's talking about Jesus' death on the cross. That's when Jesus completed his work, when he paid the price for our sin. And as a result of this work of Christ, as a result of this, he offers us the opportunity to receive that work on our behalf. You see, verse 11, he says, and this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son, right? Verse 10, whoever believes in the Son of God. Verse 12, whoever has the Son has life, and whoever doesn't have the Son doesn't have life. You see, he's making the point over and over and over and over again. It's what Jesus did. Jesus, the God-man, the Son of God, God in the flesh, not just a human, what Jesus did, the work he accomplished for us, is the source of our salvation. Now, Serratus was one of these false teachers, again, in this time period. And what he taught about Christ was that, again, Christ was a spiritual being who had come down, like I said a minute ago, on Jesus, on the man Jesus, started when he was baptized and that he left him when he was crucified. But John is denouncing such heresy. Do you see that? Just as he's been doing this whole book, he's making the point that we are saved through the work of Jesus on the cross. Give you a little cross-reference for that. John chapter 17 Verse 3 and 4, these are the words of Jesus referring to this work. He says, verse 3, Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work that you gave me to do. You see, Jesus is God in the flesh, sent from heaven, and he completed his work on the cross. And it's important, you know, we refer to this as the finished work of Christ. Have you ever heard it referred to that way? You know, that's because it, Jesus did it all. We don't add anything to it. There's nothing that we bring to this except to receive it, right? It's the finished work of Christ. And so we accept Jesus paid the price and he offers it to us. He invites us, uh, he invites us to receive what he did for us, the work that he did for us. If we will accept the price that he paid for us on the cross, then we can have our sins forgiven. We can be saved not only from the penalty of our sin, but also as a result of doing that, we receive the indwelling Holy Spirit who comes to live inside of us. That's the third element of this testimony that John's referring to here. Again, another cross-reference verse to you. 
2 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. You've maybe heard these verses before. Paul says, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you? If you've received Christ, if you've accepted his payment on the cross for us, then the Holy Spirit comes to live within us, who is in you, whom you received from God. You aren't on your own. You were bought at a price. That at that moment, when we receive Jesus as the payment for our sin, as our Savior, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us. Now, maybe you're thinking, so what is the big deal? Why is this such a a thing? Why is it so important to understand that Jesus is is not only human, but fully God? It's because, you see, friends, if he isn't, if he wasn't, then you and I are still lost in our sins, and we're powerless over temptation. If Jesus died as a human, not as God, then he could have paid for his own sins, but he couldn't have paid for ours, see? God divinely, the sinless Son of God, offered himself defeating sin, both for eternity and for each and every day whenever we're tempted. Aren't you glad that it isn't the case that Jesus was just a man? That he came, sent from heaven, setting aside his, his, all the rights of divinity to come and to be born a helpless little baby, to grow up and to die as the sinless sacrifice for our sins. Jesus is God, fully human and fully man, fully human and fully divine. And his death, his work, paid the price for our sins, for our sins, if we will just receive it. And as a result of that, you see, we have these witnesses to attest to our salvation. The finished work of Jesus and the indwelling Holy Spirit give us confidence in our salvation. And it's what gives us the power to say no when temptation comes knocking on our door. It gives us the ability to say yes to God and no to whatever that sin offering might be. And John makes the point, hey, you believe the testimony about reliable witnesses. Why don't you believe God's testimony about this? Well, then as we continue on here, what he does is he gives us the summary verse for the entire book, verse 13. He summarizes, hey, here's why I wrote this whole thing, this whole letter. He says, verse 13, and I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. You see, we know we can have confidence in our salvation that first john was written to christians to give them the assurance that they're saved and he gives us in this chapter he gives us these four 
evidences, four things. If you flip your message notes over, I'll let you fill in the blanks if you care to do so. Four things that he's telling us in this chapter that are evidences of our salvation. Here's the first one, is what we believe about Jesus is true. That as we said, that we believe that he is fully God and fully man. That he was sent from God the Father, and it was for the purpose of accomplishing the work of paying the price for sin on the cross. We believe the right thing. That's evidence number one. Evidence number two that he's been telling us is the proof of our obedient life. That as we've been saying, a true believer, it's not that we're without sin. In fact, go back, remember 1 John chapter 1, verse 8? He says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. The Christian who thinks they're sinless, the Christian who thinks, no, I don't sin anymore, they're deluded. That's what he says, isn't it? They've deceived themselves. They that, that's not the truth. Sin's still real. Sin's still a struggle. The opportunity for sin is all around us all the time. But what he is saying here is that a true believer isn't characterized by an ongoing, an ongoing sinful lifestyle. Again, over to chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, he says, The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Hey, the devil's really good at sinning, isn't he? And the reason that the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And so no one who's born of God is going to continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. It's not that they can't sin anymore. They're just not going to just go on haphazardly sinning. They're not just going to go on just throwing the, the, the cost that Jesus paid on the cross to the wind like it was no big deal. See? Chapter 5, verse 18 in this chapter. John says, and we know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. Again, John is not here talking about perfection, but he's talking about a lifestyle of obedience to God and to his word. And so a second, a second confidence, a second evidence of our salvation is that we live an obedient life. We listen to God and his word. We strive to walk in obedience to the commands of Jesus. Here's a third evidence. As we go on in this chapter, he says, thirdly, a third evidence is that our prayers are in tune with God's heart and they get answered. Listen to what he says, verse 14 and following. He says, and this is the confidence that we have in approaching God. That if we ask anything according to his will, he will hear us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. Now, this isn't some carte blanche promise that 
you know, whatever you ask, God's going to do it. Like he's some little magic genie. We just rub the Jesus genie and boom, we get whatever we ask for. No, he's saying when we get our hearts so in tune with God, we're going to ask for the right things. And you know what? We're going to get those things because we're going to be in such a wavelength that we're going to pray the right things and God's going to give us those things. I love what Tim Keller says about this. He says, God will give you everything you ask for if you knew everything that he knows. See? He knows what's good. He knows what's good for us. He knows what's going to bring him glory. As we ask for those things, we're so in tune with him, we're going to ask and receive those things. We're going to be on such a wavelength with God. That's an evidence, a confidence of our salvation. He goes on, verse 16, if you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. And I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death, and I'm not saying that you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin. And there is sin that does not lead to death. The point that John's making here is that all sin leads to death in some form. Death of our character. Death of part of our soul, um, death in our marriages, death in our credibility, death in our conscience. See, every time we disobey God, every time we choose to do it our way instead of God's way, there's some negative consequence. There's there's some aspect of death that we experience. Because you see, all sin leads to death in some form, doesn't it? Remember Paul's words, Romans chapter 6, verse 23, for the wages of sin is what? Death. Just a few verses later, Paul says, for when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us so that we bore the fruit for death. You see, all sin bears the fruit of death. And I like to define that as hell-pleasing, not in our best interest consequences. You see, hell-pleasing, not in our best interest consequences, always comes from sin, from disobedience, from choosing to do it the way I think I want instead of the way God says I should do it. Choosing to approach or think about things the way I think I should rather than listening to God and His ways. But John tells us here, in addition to that, that there are actually some sins that are grievous enough that they lead to God removing some people from this life prematurely. Believers. He doesn't tell us what. He doesn't give us a list. He doesn't say, whatever you do, avoid these six. It's not that kind of a thing. My hunch is it's got not only to do with the literal action, it's probably got something to do with the level of our heart. But 
some level, some, some aspects, some sins are so grievous that God will actually remove us prematurely. But don't miss the larger point, which is that all sin leads to death in some form. And so John makes the point, hey, here, here's an evidence of your salvation not only are you walking in obedience to, to, to Christ, but as you're doing so, your heart is at a place that you're in tune with God and you're praying in such a way that you're receiving answers, not that you're living on your own ways, that you're living in rebellion to God and what he wants and your heart is getting further and further from him, tasting death more and more. No, no an evidence of your salvation, a confidence that you can have is that you're so in tune with God that you're praying in such a way that you see answers to your prayers. And then he gives us one more. Fourth, one more evidence is that we experience divine protection. Verse 18. He says, And we know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps them safe. And the evil one cannot harm them. And we know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. And we also know that the Son of God has, has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in his son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. You see, much of this protection that comes from God is just keeping us away from Satan's harm that comes as the natural consequences to our sin. That's a whole lot of it. But even beyond that, another evidence that we have is that we're living with this awareness that God is watching over us. Now, 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 that doesn't mean that just only happy things happen. It doesn't mean that we'll just walk through this life merrily so and never stub our toe and everything will go great and only good things occur. No, we live in a broken, fallen world, right? No matter, I mean, Jesus said it rains on the just and the unjust. We experience the consequences of sin living in this world because of the consequences of other people's sins. It's just the reality of living here in a world that's still controlled by the evil one, right? But as we walk through that, we know that God is watching over us that one of the evidences that we have is this confidence that come what may, God's in control. Amen. That he's taking care of me. That he's in charge of what's going on. He's protecting me. Well, finally comes John's application. And it's pretty simple and straightforward. <laughs> he says to avoid the traps of idolatry. You know, if you only read one page in that devotional that we gave you for this, this, um, this campaign, read yesterday's on John chapter 5, 21. Brett laid out for us just some great insights, really, really good on idolatry. 
chapter 5, verse 21. Here's the, ra- here's the conclusion to the whole book. Everything that he's written up to this point is to get to saying this. He says, dear children, keep yourself from idols. Now, idolatry, you need to understand this, isn't just setting up some statue and then bowing down to it. There's not a whole lot of us are going to fall for that, right? Though, in this world, there are those that do. But you have to understand, idolatry goes much deeper than that. Idolatry is putting anything in the place that only God should have in our lives. You see, idolatry is having a God substitute. A.W. Tozer said this. I love this quote. He says, We are called to an everlasting preoccupation with God. Is God your constant preoccupation? Or has something else slipped in there? You see, the reason why we sin, the reason why we disobey God in His Word, the reason why we rebel against the things that God asks us to do or His rule over us is that we have things in the place that only God should have in our lives. And so let me just ask you here at the end of this campaign, What are the idols in your life that you have right now in the place where only God should be? It can be a person. It might be an action. It could be some possession that you have. It might be a hobby. It could be an insistence. You know, we establish these insistences that rule us. I'm not going to be alone. I'm going to be a success. I'm not going to let any person disrespect me. See, it could be an insistence. It could be some goal that you've set. It could be a job, a career. It could be anything. But what is it that you've allowed to be in the place where only God should be occupied. You see, our hearts are idol factories, aren't they? Now hear me. God isn't against good things. In fact, all the good things in our life are gifts from the hand of a good God. Isn't that true? But have any of those good things, maybe slowly without realizing it, risen to the level of being in the place that only God should be in your life? It it just happens so subtly, doesn't it? We're walking along and we're enjoying God and we're giving him credit for his goodness in our life and then... Just one day we wake up and we realize this good thing now has become a God thing for me. It's setting in the place where only, only God should be occupying in my life. We have to constantly evaluate. We have to constantly question. 
we have to constantly step back and look at our lives and say, God, have, have I let anything else get to the place where only, only you should be occupying? Amen. You see, God's desire is for us to live our lives confidently in Jesus. And so is there anything in your life that's keeping you from doing that? Well, let me pray for us. Our Lord Jesus, thank you. We love you. We want, to, we want to walk out God-pleasing lives. We do. Most of us, anyway. And yet, it's just so easy to be tricked, to be deluded, to be deceived, to, to just slip into idolatry. to get preoccupied with other little g-gods. And so, Lord, I just pray that right now, as we evaluate, like we need to do tomorrow and next Thursday and a week from Monday and constantly, as we just reevaluate God, that we'll just... Search our hearts with honesty. And Lord, when we recognize an idol, Lord, well, give us the, the courage to do what, what you said in verse 9, that if we confess our sins, you're faithful and you're just and you forgive us. If we'll just name it. God, forgive me. I, I, I've allowed this good thing to become too big a priority, too big a preoccupation Lord, help me get it back in the right place God give us the courage to do that, the honesty to do that, the humility to humble ourselves before you and God help us all as we walk out confidently being your children believing the right thing about who you are obeying you, living with a, a constant desire to live in obedience and fellowship to you and your word. Lord, having our hearts in tune with you in such a way that we pray with, with confidence and we see answers, knowing that you are protecting us, knowing that you are overseeing us, that even as things come our way, they're all, they're all within your touch, within your reach, within your plan so that we just cling closer to you and walk in confidence, trusting in you. And so, God, I just pray as we sing these next couple of songs, as we just continue to worship you, you will give us wisdom to hear from your Spirit as he's speaking to us, the indwelling Holy Spirit in us. Lord, give us the courage to respond to that confessing that and 
aligning ourselves up right with you again. Whether that's something we do right there, standing as we sing, or something we do as a prayer team member. If it's something that we need to make right with somebody else, give us the courage to start dialing that number right away. Lord, we want to we want to walk in confidence like you intend. And Lord, I do pray. I know I know John's been speaking to Christians here. But I pray for the the man or woman who might be here. And they hear all this and it doesn't quite add up. Lord, help them hear Jesus. Help them get the message that Jesus died on that cross for them. And then give them the courage to ask the question, how do I take advantage of that? So that they can leave knowing that they are your children as well. So God, hear our prayers and, and receive our worship as we pray, as we respond to you. I pray it in your name.